This is the Interchange Recharge, a Wood McKenzie production. I'm David Banmiller. We've seen extreme weather across the globe in the past few months, and it's only going to increase in frequency. Mitigating these risks, strengthening the grid, and reducing emissions to limit the warming are all vital. We need to do more with less energy and fewer resources. On the show today, we'll explore how we can use digitization to manage this. Joining me to explore this is Bala Vinayagam, Senior Vice President of Microgrids at Schneider Electric. In Behind the Meter, how can we really enable the functioning of the different energy loads, both the smart loads like the EV and the resources that work as a system? Electricity 4.0 is the foundation of a digitized, modern, and electrified grid. It's a principle that transforms how we source, transmit, and consume energy. We'll examine this in more detail later on, but the key point is that the infrastructure of the future will be powered by technological solutions that already exist. We just need to deploy them. I'm also delighted to be joined by Jana Gerber, North American Microgrid President, also at Schneider Electric. We see that this is not an easy task, right? It's hard work and it's also never ending. Like the world is gonna continue to evolve. Business models are gonna continue to evolve. But for Schneider, it's really part of our DNA and a framework to be part of the solution and to thrive from it. The future of sustainability depends on electrifying and digitizing our energy grid. Through digital twin interfaces, online exchanges and marketplaces, Schneider is constantly innovating to do more with less energy. Let's find out how they do it. Bala, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Happy to be here. Jana, thanks for joining us. Excited. It's a great afternoon for a podcast. Absolutely. So Bala, I'll start off with you on this new concept, Electricity 4.0. We've heard of Web 3.0. You know, I mean, is this simply just kind of the next iteration, the next generation? Can you explain a little bit more about that? It's a a very important question, right? Electricity 4.0 is uh, uh, Schneider's vision for a more sustainable, resilient, and efficient electric world. It's about coming together of the digital technologies and the electrification of the infrastructure that's powered by Schneider's product system, software, and services. It fundamentally looks into four uh, aspects, actually, in fact, uh, the Electricity 4.0. Number one is decarbonization. You know, what can we do to help really reduce the greenhouse gas emissions and decarbonize the economy by electrifying more sectors of the economy, and then by using actually renewable energy sources to generate electricity. So that's uh, pillar number one, decarbonization. Two is digitization. So what can we do to you know, deploy digital technologies today to help uh, monitor the usage of the energies? How can we leverage uh, the collection of the data to artificial intelligence, leveraging the big data and the internet of things to really help improve the efficiency as well as the resilience of the existing infrastructure itself? Because there's a lot of efficiency that's left to be captured actually from this current infrastructure by just pure uh, digitization itself. And the third one is decentralization. The current electrical infrastructure is more uh, bulk generation and a large transmission infrastructure and uh, uh, radial distribution. There is no bidirectionality of the uh, power itself, It's even though it's coming actually in bits and pieces. The idea is now how do we make this decentralization to be uh, more prolific? Uh, by making sure that there's more distributed generation storage that comes behind the meter and how actually this can help improve resilience of the grid at the same time also like, you know, uh, generating a green infrastructure behind the meters. And the last one, you know, the 4.0 talks about is really democratization of the infrastructure itself. 
how do we really empower the consumers to play a much more uh, direct and active role in the energy system itself? You know, how can they really participate through demand response programs, through energy efficiency measures, and actually, you know, deploying distributed generation and green infrastructure behind the meter? Jana, can you explain a little bit about what Schneider Electric is doing exactly to help buildings become more sustainable uh, with new energies and new technologies? Yeah, so building upon what Bala just shared about the Electricity 4.0, you know, it's really about that optimization of the grid to the plug journey between both supply and demand. So when you digitize the system, you can efficiently handle the flows that happen between the grid and energy sources that might sit on the grid, such as solar panels, batteries, and electric vehicles. So, you know, we all believe and know that electrical loads are truly increasing, but, you know, electrification makes energy green. And we know that electricity is the most efficient energy proven to be three to five times that of other energy sources. And it's the easiest vector or the best vector for decarbonization. So as Bala also mentioned, we're at right now and what we have is a one directional, a unidirectional energy flow. But the future says that it's going to be back and forth and we must optimize both. And so to deploy the solar distributed energy resources faster to support that electrification at the homes, buildings, transport, EV infrastructure. So really what it comes down to is at the end of the day, buildings are going to serve as dispatchable loads. And they're no longer just something that consumes from the grid, but actually an asset to support the grid. And how difficult is that? Because I mean, it sounds so logical and simple, but I'm sure it's a pretty Herculean task to accomplish that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's about changing the landscape, right? It's um, when we think about this, it's the evolution of the prosumer, right? So now as as individuals or businesses or people leveraging that energy, we're no longer just consuming it, we're also producing it. So we have to change the whole mindset and really change some of the business models that exist today and that have built the grid and our overarching electrical infrastructure. Bala, one of the things that, that's been talked about a lot is microgrids. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of exactly what microgrids are and what role they play in, in the global decarbonization? Uh, I always love this question, actually, because depending on who you talk to, I think that it's a different definition of the microgrid. You know, for us, it's behind the meter. In behind the meter, how can we really enable the functioning of the different energy loads, both the smart loads like the EVs and the HVACs, are the normal lighting loads and the resources that work as a system. That resources can be, uh, you know, solar panels. It can be, uh, you know, uh, wind or hydrogen or storage. Right? How they can all come together and uh, uh, act uh, independently as well as alongside with the grid. And the ability of, for them actually to uh, provide actually different kind of outcomes while it's connected to the grid and while it's uh, disconnected from the grid is what actually makes this as a microgrid. And, and there's a lot of things have to come together actually to really enable this uh, microgrid itself. There is an intelligent control systems, softwares, different technology stacks that needs to come in and truly understand how to really orchestrate the different generation and the loads based on uh, various different types of constraints, both uh, the economic constraints as well as actually the power system constraints that it needs to take to do that part. So what we also look through this definition of the microgrid is also like what the microgrid, you know, gives as an outcome. Uh, we fundamentally like look at three types of outcome. One is like, how can these microgrids help reduce the cost of the 
energy, right? That's more of an economic uh, outcome. Or how can these uh, DERs that are behind the meter can participate in the grid as well? It's also another economic outcome that can generate actually income for these uh, deployed distributed energy resources. Two, resilience. Like how can these assets can provide actually resilience for climate-related events or any outages that the utility has to take and there is a longer duration of power outages. And the third one, how do you really enable this economics and the resilience uh, by really enabling a, a greener infrastructure behind it, which we call as a decarbonized infrastructure that really makes this one more sustainable. And so I assume that with the microgrids, you're looking at also, you need to have an, an efficient energy management software system in there, but also uh, some type of storage as well to really get it uh, effective. The the microgrids have been existing for a very long time. And you talk to the industry experts, like anybody who has been having a diesel gen set or a CHP, we have seen it for several decades now, right? The idea right now is actually when you put solar and when you have excess solar, how do you really enable actually this excess solar or the excess electrons to be captured actually in storage? And as soon as you put the storage in it, it really unlocks a variety of different use cases. The economic outcomes that I talked about at the beginning is one to reduce the cost of the energy. You know, what happens in this case is you have the solar panels charge the batteries and the batteries come in and serve actually at different point in time where actually there is a, a different time of use rates that are attached to that, right? So it helps reduce the cost of the electricity bill itself. And actually when the utility needs to really take care of its peak, when the sun goes down and the wind uh, uh, does not exist, like, you know, and there is a peaking event that happens, similar to what we have seen, actually, with our cart, the battery itself can come uh, to help actually support the grid's peak requirement. So I think the storage is almost like, a, a, you know, makes this microgrid into a Swiss Army knife, enabling different uh, uh, use cases. And how important do you think standardization of the microgrids is? Very important. I think, see, you know, in the last, I would, if you talk to the different uh, microgrid builders, people who have pioneered, including Sand Electric, uh, in the last, you know, seven to 10 years time, you know, we have done like more than 400 plus projects, uh, you know, truly uh, you know, uh, establishing why microgrids are an important enabler of the deep decarbonization of the uh, electrical infrastructure itself in front of the meter, right? As you keep adding more solar and more wind, there needs to be a lot of demand side flexibility that needs to be unlocked uh, uh, behind the meter. It's not just actually recruiting the thermostat, but also like seeing how uh, the energy that is produced and consumed actually can also be uh, exported back to the grid actually as capacity uh, uh, requirements or for energy requirements or for energy services. And here, if we need to truly enable this one at scale, standardization is very critical because every single microgrid project that uh, we have seen are snowflakes. So there is a variety of different uh, costs, soft costs that gets added in the, you know, uh, someone actually says like, I want to have a microgrid. Like from the time actually, you know, someone decides to go for a microgrid to designing, building, installing, commissioning, maintaining, and operating. The entire life cycle has a variety of different soft costs that can be enabled, that can be removed by standardizing, uh, you know, the microgrid. It's literally like, you know, creating Lego blocks that can be made into a plug and play that simplifies and eliminates a lot of the soft costs in uh, different stages of putting this uh, microgrids together. Uh, Jana, a, a term that I've actually just recently become familiar with is is, is a prosumer, somebody who produces and, and consumes. How, how is that kind of changing the landscape here? Uh, and what are you guys doing to, to work with them? Yeah, so you're exactly right. I think of it as a mathematical equation, right? Produce plus consumes equals prosumer, right? But the fact that we're localizing energy and allowing 
people, homes, buildings to actually produce their own and generate their own energy, it means that that we are now able to have reliable, efficient, sustainable energy based on our terms and how much the monetization of that, right? So it's really about that smartly acquiring the energy from the utility in the grid and reducing peaks and all the elements that Bala talked about via the microgrids, locally producing, and then also efficiently consuming, right? So you have that alignment between supply and demand. And, you know, so I guess one would say like, why now? Why are we seeing this happen now? It's really about some other, some converging factors, high energy prices, <laughs> Texas, we see them all the time, right? You mentioned you're from Houston, I'm from Dallas, you know, we've seen this need for resilience due to the Texas storms. And, you know, one of my favorite stories to say to tell folks is that, you know, after the storm Yuri, it was everybody with solar panels on their house was like, why don't I still have energy when the when the grid goes down? Well, that's not the way the grid works, right? You get disconnected from the grid. So that need for that high energy prices or the driving up of the high energy prices, the desire of all of us to have that resilience in our homes and buildings and operations is super important. And then the other really exciting thing that that continues to go forward is the technological advances and the cost declines, whether that be in the solar and batteries or other new types of technologies that are coming on the market. And it's also obviously reduced or resulted in boom times for electric vehicles and then also the solar peat photovoltaic installation. So, and then I think we're going to get to spend a little bit more time here in a few minutes, but talking really about now, yeah, the state, local, federal uh, impact and the push towards sustainability. And they're also putting their money there, right? With things like the Inflation Reduction Act. So a super exciting time. Um, and really what a prosumer is and why we're seeing this change in what we also call sometimes the prosumer era. So I was uh, about to, you know, kind of relate my, you know, practical experience on the prosumer side. Like, you know, I moved from Toronto to, uh, to Boston a year back, uh, you know, while I was paying actually, uh, you know, for a similar type of house and electricity bill of around uh, 110 Canadian dollars. You can put an exchange rate of uh, 0.3 and see actually, uh, you know, where that is less than sub, sub 100 US dollars. As soon as I come in actually into Boston, I could clearly see for the same uh, amount of uh, consumption, actually, the electricity bill was like, you know, 500 to $600 and the winter it went up to $800. So it's it's no brainer out for someone like me actually who comes in and sees such a low cost of energy uh, coming from one place and coming in and see a high cost of energy, uh, having those, uh, you know, uh, solar panels on the roof. But when you also look at actually the, the programs that you know someone like Eversource runs actually as a utility locally here is also not only they recruit actually the grid connected solar to help them actually offset uh, uh, you know and make the infrastructure green, but also have programs for the battery. So it makes uh, quicker sense actually to see like you can put the battery in, it gives you resilience, and the same battery is also now recruited into the grid for uh, you know peak shaving purposes. So combination of the solar plus storage helps me produce, consume. Uh, meets my economic needs. The electricity bill is like minus uh, $400 in the last four months' time, just for you to know. Okay. And two, actually, it also helps, uh, you know, provide ancillary services back into the grid. Plus, I do actually have a home that's going to be passive certified just because I'm able to really look into all the efficiency side of the story, plus actually producing my own power 
and selling back into the grid. On this kind of changing landscape, Jan, and, and talking about the utilities, and one thing that we know about them is is they're slow to move. Uh, they don't change frequently or rapidly. What do they need to do to kind of help adapt to all these changes that are going on, particularly with you know prosumers and consumers, microgrids, all that? So, you know, again, going back to the grid to plug discussion, right? As they think about their landscape, they're wanting to know and see and understand and be able to communicate with all those elements on their connected to their grid, right? So it's a, it's a digitization question for them in a lot of ways, and then creating the programs that help them to allow and encourage this type of decentralized energy generation, right? So one of the we all, you know we'll talk a little bit later on on permitting and some other challenges, but one of the big challenges from and distributed energy resources and particularly microgrids is that interconnection timeline and how long it takes to apply and get approved if you are approved for that interconnect. So, you know, one of the things that we talked about earlier was the standardization of microgrids and really kind of creating something that's easier for the utilities to understand, easier for designers to adapt and easier for integrators to install. So we believe that it is a two-way conversation in that discussion. Utilities need to focus in that interconnection timeline, but we also need to help them understand the risks and what is being put on their grid as well. So I guess a good example that I'd like to share on this one is about a microgrid installation in Southern California. It's at a large marine core base called Miramar. If you've seen Top Gun, you would know which um, base I'm talking about. But they were really being impacted by the large power outages back in early 2010-11 timeframe. And they started thinking about the fragility of their power systems and exploring options for how do they become a pursuer, an early adopter pursuer, start to put large-scale renewables energy systems in their site. So you know, they were successful. We, they have a large microgrid installed. And, you know, kind of that interconnect with the grid, though, came into play in 2020 when in that space there was a lot of heat and critical levels in the grid. And so the, the utility was able to reach out to Miramar and say, hey, can you spin up and generate more of your own capacity on inside of your own space via the microgrid so that they could allow other homeowners and communities surrounding that microgrid to remain powered as well without going dark during that time. So it's that interconnect again, supply to the grid to plug and how do we really make that beneficial for the communities, the people, the um, businesses that, that sit inside of those areas. It, David, like, you know, uh, 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 building on from what Janice said, actually, also, like, you know, we got to really look at the utilities and microgrid. It's been uh, in a kind of uh, a hate relationship, actually, like, moved on to a love-hate relationship. We are in that phase right now. If you truly look at this part, I think utilities need to play a bigger role. I think the, the microgrids itself is going to help and complement uh, the utility functions in a big way, uh, in, in our opinion. Like, you know, uh, let, let's unpack this part, actually. So today's grid is uh, you know, bulk generation, large transmission infrastructure, radial distribution, right? Behind the meter, uh, you know, uh, bi-directional uh, story that we have today is like less than 1%. It's not really having any material impact yet, actually, in terms of uh, this grid. And this grid is true today, like more than 60% is through fossil fuels, okay? 
And one, as we are going to deeply decarbonize with more solar and uh, and wind, and assuming there's more storage that's going to come to complement that part, you know, assuming this moves actually like say 60, 70, 80% in the next uh, two decades time, you know, there is a lot more of uh, this grid's stability and reliability needs to be ensured by the demand side flexibility that needs to exist behind the meter. So because you have a, a system that's being designed for, you know, dispatchable generation, you know, planned loads, it's probably more simpler to understand what generation need to be dispatched. And the entire market has been structured actually to really incentivize and monetize this infrastructure. Now, this infrastructure is going to move from, uh, you know, non-dispatchable generation, solar and wind, and unpredictable loads, because now you're going to have EVs as part of this infrastructure. Now, think about now 250 million vehicles actually that comes onto the grid and trying to charge in this one, right? So we are really moving from a very complex problem. This complex problem requires a variety of different toolkits that needs to come in to help truly make this one into a very reliable, deeply decarbonized infrastructure. And one of them is microgrid. And microgrid enables that demand-side flexibility very effectively. Like uh, what Jana said, like, you know, to Miramar, like, you know, uh, you, ca you call and you ask them to really uh, decouple from the network. Now they have an infrastructure that can feed their own customers. And we call it resilience. At the same time, it's also an ancillary services, right? Basically, you know, enabling the utility to take care of the, the peaks. Instead of bringing more fossil fuel generation to, you know, work on the peaks, microgrids potentially will allow in the future to really, uh, you know, tone down or almost remove the peaks that are required actually to maintain this infrastructure. When you choose Wood McKenzie, you choose a true partner who brings innovation and clarity along with independent business intelligence. Our global solutions provide you the data, research, and analytics that you need to capitalize on the energy transition. We've provided energy intelligence for 50 years and over the last decade, significantly scaled our power and renewables capabilities. Yet the energy transition is the biggest change we have ever seen. Market evolutions and technology revolutions have disrupted legacy business models, creating a new energy landscape. Electricity will be the dominant fuel source of the 21st century. Navigate the energy markets across policy, regulations, and technology with Wood McKenzie. Speak to us today about how our experts can help you thrive in the fast-changing power industry as we work together to transform the way we power our planet. And Jenna, how, how does energy as a service kind of facilitate all these transformations? Yeah, so... Energy as a service is a, a really disruptive business model. And the idea of it is to capture the benefits of the microgrid, the resilience, the sustainability, the, um, the uptime and the energy cost elements without the, the cost and risk of the capital investment. So now instead of paying for it all up front, the person who's receiving that energy from the microgrid is paying for it pretty much as a monthly utility bill. And it's a fixed cost, right? Like it's built into the contract. You're, the sun's going to shine. The battery's going to store the energy. You're going to have access to this new power source at more of a fixed cost than having to ride the waves with the utilities and availability. So you get with energy as a service, you get the outcomes you need to run your business with cost-effective, resilient, and sustainable energy. You don't have to put up all that upfront cost capital to buy the core business or the core system. 
And you get to work with an energy partner who understands microgrids, the technology, the long-term goals, and be able to design that system around it. So we're really excited about the benefits and the opportunity. You know, as we were looking at the market about seven, 10 years ago, it was like we were seeing some of those early adopters, but then others were coming into the market and very interested in, in the technology, but not making that leap into adoption. And so with energy as a service and that risk, as well as financial mechanism, we feel this is going to continue to open up the market and proliferate microgrids. And so it's, I mean, it's kind of like cell phones, right? You don't have to pay the phone up front, you get the service ongoing, but then I think it also allows for a more bespoke solution based on your client's needs and what their energy use times and, and all that is. Very well spoken. Yes, absolutely <laughs> agree. So, I mean, um, maybe an example would be helpful here. You know, we have a customer, um, Montgomery County, that um, was looking at bringing online. So they got a, you know, a grant for 70 new buses, electric buses. And so they started thinking about, okay, well, I need to electrify my depot to charge the buses as they come in for the night. And so they they went to the utility, kind of looked at what that option was. It's 70 buses is a large load, right? I think about it like a little bit, you know, in your home back in the day when you had too many hair dryers or curling irons or the vacuum was plugged in and all of a sudden your, you know, your circuits kind of flipped and everything. The same thing can be true at a very large substation perspective as well, right? There's a certain amount of capacity available. So Brookville found was they said, okay, well, let's look at an energy as a service model. It helps us with the cost that bright costs. It doesn't add additional costs to our the folks in our community. And we're getting the technology and the best of the best to your point. In this case, it was a 100% renewable solution to charge those buses in this new depot solution. And, and how does Schneider work with some of the these organizations through, I know you guys have a couple joint ventures that you go through, and, and how does that work with helping some of these organizations towards decarbonization? So we have two joint ventures that we built in the last five years. Um, one is Alpha Structure. With that, we have partnered with the Carlisle Group. The Carlisle Group is a large infrastructure organization. And what we're focused on with Alpha Structure and with the Carlisle Group is really these large bespoke microgrid solutions, helping to really drive forward that energy-related infrastructure. So um, an example, a recent example of a win um, inside of this team was also not only the Brickville project that we just talked about, but also JFK Terminal 1. So in that case as well, they're building a brand new terminal and looking for driving more resilience, sustainability, and then helping with their energy costs. So they look to out the structure and we're adding um, very large power islands that will operate and um, allow the, the terminal to maintain power for a few hours after a critical event. And then the second that we've um, started is Green Structure, and that's a joint venture with Hub Capital and ClearGen, which is a Blackstone company, as well as Brookfield Renewables. And in this case, we're looking for more modularity and scale. So how do we capture that um, small and mid-market and help to really bring those buildings into the age of the prosumer, right? So again, helping to proliferate and bring more of that to market. So 
All right, switching gears to something we talk about all the time right now, particularly given its impact, is the IRA. So, you know, Janet, how do you feel like the IRA and what's in there can actually be leveraged further to help with the, the energy transition? So when we look at these credits, and the the legislation, they've been enormous as the U.S. is building domestic supply chains to facilitate the renewable energy transition, whether that be new EV battery factories or other types of factories. In fact, Schneider Electric just did a ribbon cutting last week in El Paso around um, our new factory as well. So the exciting thing about these bills are that they're driving significant, that new significant clean energy electric generation. And it's going to help the U.S. to reach 80% of our clean electricity by 2030. So that's a super exciting statistic as we move forward. And then we can look at some other reports and otherwise that will help share the investment and the outputs in the tailwind. So we're seeing some of the investments really happening now, but some some we won't see until later and they'll be back in loaded in the 10-year timeline. But what we've seen since this passage last year is that we've announced private industry 210 new clean energy and clean vehicle projects. And if these projects will create 74,181 new jobs, there's a lot of statistics here that say these are great things, right? and bring in an additional $86.3 billion in private investments. So then another stat within the last year is more than 100 new clean energy manufacturing facilities and factory expansions were announced in the U.S., totaling near, nearly $80 billion in invest, new investments. So, you know, what we're seeing with the IRA is not only the impact to our clean energy journey and net zero goal, but also really the um reestablishment and investment in our workforce and the economy. So I, I'm very excited about the impacts of the IRA and where we're going from here. Abala, have you seen any barriers that have been lifted, whether it's as a result of the IRA or maybe just market conditions in general that were kind of there before that no longer are that can help with growth within the energy transition? I, I, I think uh, IRA definitely addresses uh, uh, a lot of that, in my opinion, though. Think about actually, uh, uh, you know, the the deep decarbonization that needs to happen with more solar and wind, which means that we need more transmission, right? I think there is definitely uh, uh, provisions actually that are put in IRA that's going to help actually, you know, uh, build new transmission lines, and there are incentives actually around uh, to make that happen. So one of the things that we need to definitely think about is now how do we convert this from convert this into an action, right? Uh, a typical transmission infrastructure takes almost uh, 10 years in the U.S., you know, in order for it to be built. Now, with IRA, hopefully, like, you know, we uh, would be able to reduce, actually, the time it takes, actually, for the uh, transmission infrastructure to be built. I think if you look at the peak demand that U.S. will experience with the electrification of the buildings and the electrification of the fleet, you need, actually, somewhere around another 400 to 600 gigawatt of uh, capacity that needs to be built. And that capacity is going to be built... Uh, uh, in front of the meter and behind the meter, probably more than three-fourths of that is going to be built in front of the meter that requires actually these, uh, you know, transmission uh, build, the permitting, and the right-of-way that is required to make that happen. I think IRA has got provisions. Uh, so we will start to see actually some of these things uh, translating into more speed, speeding up actually the construction of these transmission projects. And two, like, you know, the number of uh, generation projects that are 
now waiting to be interconnected, right? There is an aspect of policies that beyond IRA that most of the the states and actually the utilities and the TSOs need to come together actually to make it happen. I think this is where another uh, you know big work that need to happen in terms of uh, streamlining the policies and reducing the interconnection delays. So today, like more than uh, two terawatt of uh, generation that's waiting to be connected to the U.S. Uh, you know transmission infrastructure, just for the lack of uh, transmission and the congestions that happens and the amount of time it takes actually to study them. I think there's still a lot of refinement uh, that needs to happen on the policy front to really enable more of these interconnections to come faster. So, but if you really turn towards the DER side, right? So on the DER side, we definitely see a lot of the states now will start to leverage the IRA fundings to really further actually strengthen actually the policies that they have already adopted. Like for example, the uh, the new net metering policy that has come with California, right? The Microgrid Act of Connecticut, you know, the the fleet actually uh, moving to a net zero in California, right? The evolving Microgrid Act in California, the VPP focus policies in Texas and in the Northeast and in California. I think all of them are going to definitely leverage the IRA provisions and will help improve actually a lot of these uh, uh, you know distributed energy resource penetrations as well. Yeah, and I mean policy and permitting that that can always create delays. I mean, sometimes it feels like the right arm is telling you to go 100 miles an hour and then the left arm hasn't heard. It's just, it's slowing things down. Uh, what do you think can be done to help with with policies and permitting and bringing people together to, to help achieve Electricity 4.0 uh, and accelerate towards that? I, I think the first and foremost is truly about the policymakers, both at the city level, city leadership, city council level, have a clear understanding of what it takes for them to build a, a clean energy economy. I think it's for uh, for the national security and the security of the nation itself. I think there is an heightened level of level of awareness that needs to come, in my opinion, with this uh, leadership team. And you know that's where probably the permitting part of the story comes in, right? We see a lot of these delays comes from uh, not only from the uh, you know the policies that needs to evolve on the on the state side on the federal side, but also a lot of this permitting has got attached to the uh, to these cities and the councils making these decisions. Just as an example, like for example. In Australia, more than one third of the houses or homes are with the solar panel. And our attachment rate of the battery is ever increasing, actually. Whereas in the US currently, we are roughly at around 5%. And even with the IRA and actually the, the deployment rate that we see currently by accelerated IRA provisions, US will probably see around 15% of the residential sector going with solar and storage. Now, what would it take for us actually reach like 40%, 50%? I think this is where that uh, awareness need to happen at all aspects of the communities to help really accelerate on the permitting side, also like enacting the policies at the local level to keep pushing that. So, Jana, earlier you were talking about investing and, you know, there's been a, a recent kind of uproar uh, for ESG investing, uh, which has probably detracted a little bit from the impact that it's that it's had overall. What are your views on the current state of of ESG and kind of what what Schneider Electric is doing uh, in regards to that? Yeah, I'll start a little bit with some of our beliefs at Schneider Electric about the ESG and really overall, right? So our belief is that companies can do more than just survive and be profitable, right? We believe that you can thrive and maximize your positive impact if you rethink, adapt to who you really are what you do and how we do it, right? We call this our impact company principles. And there's two main principles inside of the impact company. The first principle is that you need to do well to do good. 
right? So performance is key because it's the foundation for doing good, but your business also has to be part of the solution. So how you need to do well to do good and you need to do good to do well, right? So that's kind of first principle, which is um, one that we stand by very strongly. And the second is that we have to bring all of us around, right? The rising tides raise all boats or however that actual saying is, but it requires us to set ourselves up for a global and local impact and having the right model and culture. So helping to bring all those stakeholders along into the ecosystem and so that they can do good. So we can have more companies doing good to do well and doing well to do good. I think that that's really where we're at with our thoughts around the impact companies. Schneider Electric was recognized in 2021 as the most sustainable company in the world, which by corporate nights, which was really exciting. And so we focus a lot on how do we help to bring others into this and how do we help our customers to advance their sustainability, ESG, and their performance as well. So, you know, we see that this is not an easy task, right? It's hard work and it and it's also never ending. Like the world is going to continue to evolve. Business models are going to continue to evolve. But for Schneider, it's really part of our DNA and a framework to be part of the solution and to thrive from it. So we're pushing really hard in this space and wanting to lead the way and help bring others along. So Bala, one thing that, that we've noticed over the past probably a couple of years now is that extreme weather events are not really isolated anymore to kind of pockets around the globe. Uh, we're seeing increasingly more everywhere. So what is Schneider doing specifically to help with addressing climate change and, and working with their with their clients and, and governments altogether. So again, I mean, trusted partnership is very, very important when it comes to maintaining grid availability, right? I will take an example, a recent announcement that we made with PG&E on how we are really helping PG&E to address actually all these weather-related events because Peak California is a, probably a great example of, uh, you know, the experience that we are going through with respect to the extreme weather events. Uh, right. For example, like in the case of California, like, you know, Shadow Electric is going to deploy its uh, uh, distributed energy resource management on the Microsoft Azure platform. It will allow actually now PG&E to effectively maintain the grid reliability and as well as to accelerate the adoption of the distributed energy resources, as well as electric vehicles, storage and rooftop solar. So the idea is like, you know, how can this DERMS platform can truly allow the a utility to understand the interconnection pathway, you know, how to understand this one very early in the process of design itself, and what kind of uh, flexibilities that exist in terms of the critical loads, understanding where these critical loads are, what location they are in, and whether they require a 24-7 power, understanding actually the new construction of where do we need to put these microgrids, right? How do we need to now you know, to connect them, monitor them, you know, also like looking at the, the data that needs to come reliably, like why you create a very reliable microgrid, also, how do you create actually a reliable data that needs to come to the platform to ensure that, you know, you truly have a resilient communication infrastructure in order for you to really provide those uh, uh, resilient energy needs for the communities that are affected by the extreme weather events. That's one example. And there's many more examples of that, actually, that we're working very closely with multiple different utilities as well. So one other example that I can also relate is also through the Schneider Foundation, right? You know, how Schneider is really helping uh, some of these nonprofit organizations like American Red, Red Cross and the Footprint Project to allow, uh, build actually access to energy during 
disaster or even prepping them actually before the disaster itself. Like, for example, in the case of Hawaii, like, you know, uh, Schneider donated close to 300K in grant funding to these organizations to support actually the after effects of the recent weather event there. Well, listen, Jana, Bala, I really appreciate you guys coming on the show. Interesting discussion and, and fascinating to hear about all the all the things that you guys are doing and working on globally. Thank you so much for having me, David. Thanks for having us. The moment is now. It's time to make buildings smarter, modernize the grid, and accelerate digitalization and electrification. Uncovering and analyzing data is crucial to locating inefficiencies and finding ways to reduce CO2 emissions. This can be taken a step further where assets and infrastructure are able to talk to each other and the grid via their digital systems. This truly smart infrastructure will make it possible to push towards sustainability goals and achieve a net zero future. Schneider Electric is helping us to do more with less energy. I'm David Miller, and this is The Interchange Recharged, out every second Friday at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. If you haven't already, check out our sister podcast, The Energy Gang. It's a bi-weekly look at the biggest and most important stories in energy. Hosted by Ed Crooks, with regular guests Dr. Melissa Lott from Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, and Amy Myers-Jaffe of NYU's Energy, Climate Justice, and Sustainability Lab, plus a roster of analysts, commentators, and industry leaders, it's everything you need to know in one place. So next Friday from 7 a.m. Eastern Time, join the Energy Gang conversation, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.